if I think like a detective, I would think it would be um, the person who helped the opportunity was probably, and the motive was probably her father, Norman. Uh, but Asmodeus has raised his ugly head and um, he's the gremlin in the whole thing. Welcome to Murder Archives. This is episode 8 of Fractured Silence, the death of Norma Reese MacLeod. We're going to wrap up where we've got to so far and I'll leave you with some potential theories. More importantly, we're going to leave you with some remaining questions. So where are we now? We've already explained on several occasions why accident and burglary were ruled out. Norma's injuries couldn't have been inflicted by a fall of any description. A burglar would unlikely have stopped to make Norma comfortable and there were no indications of anything taken or any fingerprints from a stranger. In our previous episode, we explored possible theories about who killed Norma and why. These focused on her family, Edith, Norman and Rhys. We also heard from Dr Karen Scally, forensic psychologist who threw a curveball and suggested we look more seriously at Walter Maxwell Dumont Dunn. Well, what about the idea of Max Dunn as the killer as suggested by Dr Scally? This suspicion of Dunn was based on several factors. First, you may remember that there were suggestions from the public at the time of Norma's death that Dunn was somehow involved one person suggesting that Dunn was Asmodeus, the mysterious letter writer, another that he knew the MacLeods and made unpleasant jokes about what we don't know. Second, Dunn's statement to police left more questions than it answered. In it, you may remember, Dunn told police he had known Norma and her family for about five years, but had stopped visiting the house two years before. Annoyingly, we don't know why. Third, Dr Scully's impressions of Dunn was of someone with a narcissistic personality. Karen also believed that Dunn may have written the Asmodeus letter himself. Following that, we consulted with a handwriting expert, Andrea Scarfe. I should point out here that Andrea is a graphologist which means she not only analyses the authenticity of documentation, but also interprets personality traits from handwriting. And it would be fair to say that there are many who support the validity of analysis, but are not so convinced by the personality interpretation aspect. Andrea herself has stated that graphology has many more proponents in the UK than in Australia. You can see her full report on our website and draw your own conclusions. But before we get to Andrea's findings, let's take a look at the man himself, Walter Maxwell Dumont Dunn. In episode four, when we first properly introduced Dunn, I said he was a fascinating character who deserves a book of his own. That's certainly true, and for those of you who haven't had time to look at the brief bio of this man on our website, here's what we've discovered. According to several friends and commentators in the world of poetry, in which he later found himself, 
Walter Maxwell Dumont Dunn, or Max Dunn as he was more commonly known, had a marked tendency to embroider his past. One writer, Adrian Rawlins, referred to Dunn as a naughty fibber. Charles Lee Cook wrote that his friend Dunn had developed a reputation the mystery man of letters with a faint touch of unreality about his accounts of his early life. And the Australian Dictionary of Biography entry for Dunn notes that Max's versions of his early life varied so much that his friends were sceptical about the truth of any of it. Dunn's embroidering of his past makes it difficult to piece together his life story with any certainty of the truth. To complicate matters, there was another Max Dunn, known more commonly as Maxwell Dunn, working in the literary field as a contemporary of our Dunn. This Dunn wrote radio plays and later film scripts, which could have easily been attributed to our Dunn and have been on some existing websites. So be mindful of this if you Google Max Dunn. Any investigation into our Dunn's life needs to be conducted with caution. Most commentators believe that Walter Maxwell Dumont Dunn was born in Dublin, Ireland on the 5th of June, 1895. The son of Richard Lawrence Dunn, who was supposedly a wealthy solicitor, and Helen Eloise Hanyadi Dumont, a Hungarian baroness. According to his biography in the Penguin Book of Australian Verse of 1958, Dunn was educated at Winchester College, an independent boarding school for boys in the British private school tradition, situated in Hampshire, England. However, friend Ron Simpson wrote that Dunn actually only spent two weeks at Winchester before returning to Dublin. And my brother and co-investigator in the UK, Simon Curtin, confirmed that Winchester had no record of Dunn. Dunn then claimed to have studied medicine at Edinburgh University which my brother also found to be untrue, followed by a stint at the Sorbonne in Paris, again with no evidence to confirm this claim. Dunn was known or believed to have had considerable knowledge of several languages. He was an intellectual and liked to surround himself with academics, creating the impression that he was one himself. On the 18th of July 1916, Dunn married Tatiana Vasiliev. Sadly, we know very little about this woman, other than the fact that she died two years later and that her name suggests a Russian heritage. Two brief biographies of Dunn suggested that Dunn and Tatiana had a daughter, but what happened to her is unknown. During the First World War, Dunn apparently served in the army and then the Royal Flying Corps, and both did travel to Russia between 1914 and 1917, before the Russian Revolution, to provide support for the Imperial Russian Army, so perhaps Dunn met Tatiana there. After the war, Dunn told people he had stayed for a short time in America, where he claimed to have gained university qualifications in philosophy and or psychology at Columbia and Pennsylvania State Universities. But again, there's no evidence of this. My brother Simon contacted Columbia and Pennsylvania State Universities and was told by both that they had no record of Dunn having attended their institutions, let alone gaining qualifications. Dunn arrived in Australia in 1924, calling himself 
Dr Dumont done. Australia would have been a great place to reinvent yourself at this time. No Google to track you down and a world away from Europe and a past you may not have liked. Dunn seemed to take this opportunity with gusto. Although apparently subsidised by his allowance from his parents, Dunn initially earned his living in Australia through public talks and radio segments. We know this is true as his name frequently appeared in Melbourne's newspapers, advertising his latest lecture or radio broadcast. He was a frequent guest in the 1920s at the Austral Salon of Music, which had been established by a group of female journalists in Melbourne in 1890 to support women writers. Dunn's topics were varied, but included such things as the mind of the poet, the romance of surnames, the psychology of listening or how we hear, and psychology and the child. While we know from Dunn's police statement that he certainly knew Norma and her family, we don't know how they met. Just after Norma's death, Dunn indicated that they had known each other for about five years, making 1924 the year they met. Norma was then 24 and Dunn was 29. Perhaps they'd become acquainted at one of Dunn's talks. The sheltered, naive Norma may have been awestruck by this smooth-talking sophisticate that Dunn represented. We certainly know Dunn was familiar with the broader family by early 1925. For example, in the Woman's World section of the Melbourne Herald on the 18th of March of that year, it was announced that Dr Dumont Dunn would be visiting Ballarat as the guest of Mrs Clifford Simons. Mrs Clifford Simons just happened to be Edith MacLeod's sister and Norma's aunt. Dunn was again in Ballarat in October that year, as was Edith MacLeod, and taking a holiday there in January 1926. We can only speculate about the relationship between Dunn and Norma. Perhaps they were simply friends who shared common interests in drama and poetry, as well as child psychology. Remember, Norma was particularly passionate about children's education, so this may have been an area of commonality with Dunn. Or perhaps it was art. Dunn had become manager of an art gallery, the Beaux Arts, a position he was still holding at the time of Norma's death. Or maybe their relationship was more physical. One of Dunn's friends wrote that he had varied interests and had searched for an identity through communism, Christianity, Unitarianism, writing and in sex, although he didn't elaborate on that last point. Had he had a sexual relationship with Norma? Had this caused a rift in the family? Had this been why he stopped visiting the MacLeod house around 1927, as he said in his police statement? And was it a coincidence, as I've suggested before, that Norma bought her land in Heidelberg at the same time as Dunn's visits stopped? Had they been making plans together that were blocked by discovery? Had Dunn paid for the land out of his combined earnings and parental subsidy? In the 1930s, after Norma's death, Dunn's allowance from his parents stopped with the onset of the Great Depression. Commentators have said that the early 30s represented a time of crisis for Dunn 
and according to some, he contemplated suicide. Was this just because of the loss of parental support or something related to Norma's death? We'll probably never know. Anyway, recovering from his temporary death wish, Dunn began freelance writing, now calling himself simply Max Dunn. By the 1940s, he was writing for The Age and Smith's Weekly and was becoming more engaged in poetry. He lived a bohemian, hand-to-mouth existence in fairly basic accommodation, but happily engaged with the poets and artists of the day. To many young poets, he was apparently an inspiration. Ultimately, Dunn wrote somewhere between 15 and 30 books on psychology, aviation, drama and poetry, many of which he illustrated and published himself on an 18th century printing press. He created beautiful limited editions that were considered works of art in themselves. Some have become collector's items. Over the years, Dunn showed an interest in communism and Christianity, particularly Unitarianism, as indicated earlier. But this would be overshadowed by his fascination with Buddhism. In October 1954, Dunn attended his first meeting of the Buddhist Society in Victoria. In May 55, he was elected president and would become the first ever officially appointed Buddhist chaplain at the Olympic Games attending the 1956 Games in Melbourne. Strangely enough, the athlete's village of which was built on land where Norma had bought her own block. In October 1956, Dunn married Joan Thorpe, a nurse who he'd met at a Buddhist meeting. Joan was only 25, while Dunn was 61, but according to friends, she cared for him, protected him and gave him security. In November 1962, following tests for what he considered bronchial trouble, Dunn, a heavy smoker, was diagnosed with lung cancer. He died on the 4th of September 1963, aged 68. Three years after his death, his friend Charles Lee Cook wrote of Dunn, He deserves to be far better known than he is. For the purpose of our investigation into Norma's death, knowing more about Dunn is critical. Dr Karen Scully's assessment of Dunn as narcissistic should be seen in the context of not just his life choices, but in his personality. Writing in the 1960s, fellow poet and poetry editor of The Age, Ron Simpson, who knew Dunn for about 15 years, agreed with others that the poet had a multiplicity or kaleidoscope of personalities and could show a different identity according to whom he was talking yet he was also known as an engaging personality. Simpson found him warm, friendly and at times enigmatic and stated that those who criticised Dunn the man and called him a sham were uninformed. Charles Lee Cook wrote of his friend, I was captivated by Dunn's brilliant talk about art, poetry, philosophy and religion, his charm of manner and his friendliness. For Simpson, Dunn's inclination to recreate his backstory was more of an endearment than anything sinister. He believed him to be a true innocent. Much of his life was lived in the romantic, make-believe world, and if he had taken up the stage, I'm certain he would have been quite a capable actor. For, like most actors, he was able to adapt himself to circumstances as efficiently as a chameleon. 
Simpson said that Dunn suffered throughout his life with le petit mal, or absence seizures, a form of epilepsy, and believed that this affected his behaviour. Perhaps, suggested Simpson, this made Dunn appear inconsistent and possibly helped him to exaggerate incidents in his own life or confuse reality with fantasy. Was Dunn's behaviour a result of a medical condition, a psychological problem or merely ego? I looked to the experts for their thoughts. First, Dr Scally. Somebody who later in life has shown to be a highly deceptive individual, very chameleon-like. So, you know, you can begin to see a bit of a profile here of a man who quite likely is quite narcissistic, deceptive, all things to all people. So he's ticking a lot of boxes. Graphologist Andrea Scarf provided her own analysis of Dunn through his handwriting. I think he's a rather evasive kind of character. I don't think he um, gives a lot away about himself. I don't think he has a terribly high self-opinion. He certainly keeps up appearances. You can see that in the quite large capital letters. He likes to present well, but he doesn't let people in. I'd like to have a little bit more writing of his, Mm -hmm. but he's a logical fellow, logical, has methodical, but still doesn't give a lot away. This hardly seems the description of a narcissist, yet the opposing views of Dunn given by Andrea and Karen to me represented perhaps the two sides of Dunn's personality that his friends had noted in writing. But what we really needed was to find someone we could talk to -to face-to-face who actually knew Dunn. After going down several rabbit holes, we did eventually find a couple of people associated with Dunn. But for whatever reason, after an initial approach, they decided they didn't want to pursue the matter any further. So, for now, we've had to let that go. What does all this tell us? Was Dunn a harmless eccentric or was he more dangerous? Could he really have been involved in Norma's death? And if he had, could he have kept that secret for all those years? Obviously, I'm still open to different theories. I know that it's very easy to become focused on one particular suspect and try to shoehorn the evidence to fit. I wanted to be challenged, which is why it was so important to follow Dr Scully's theory. There's no doubt it has weight. But personally, I still have my doubts. Yes, he knew Norma, and yes, he was implicated as being associated with the case by a couple of people, But beyond that, we have nothing to link him directly to Norma's death. I still can't get past the major sticking point. No matter how private the McLeods may have been, I don't believe they would have covered up a crime committed by another. Certainly they might have tried to hide an incident when Norma was still alive, particularly if there'd been signs of a sexual attack. But once she died, I just don't believe they would have kept quiet for a non-family member. I do, however, believe they would have kept quiet for one of their own. Let's look again at members of the family. For the police at the time, and in the opinion of our homicide expert, Charlie Bazina, Edith McLeod was the most likely suspect. She'd found Norma and her alibi was, at best, weak. 
But what I'm confident about is I believe it's in within the family unit and I still enter the fact of I'm not happy with Edith in relation to her alibi. I'm not happy with the way the police have followed up on her alibi. Um, we've got one lady that says, yep, she was in my store twice on that particular day. The butcher doesn't see her. The greengrocer's not even spoken to yeah. or there's nothing on the greengrocer and the likes. It's glaring stuff. Mm. The time, the police, in fact, walked the distance and put it to 45 minutes. We had credibility to the doctor that she actually walked to the surgery as opposed to ringing the surgery. The doctor is more credible because he puts a 2.30 time slot on it and because I say the credibility comes from his seeing his patients. You always relate a time to an occurrence to yeah. give it credibility. Mm. Well, why do you say it was 2.30? Mm. Well, I had five patients and then eventually at 3.30, I walked down to the house and did what I need to do. So they are the things to say, well, you know, it just did not ring true uh, with Edith's story in relation to where she'd been, what she had done. And glaringly, when the first police arrived, again, is it an oversight? Was it important to them that no one makes mention of the groceries in the kitchen? No, there's no mention at all to say, well, okay, we went there. Uh, she went to the groceries. Well, we know she did because we've got groceries on there. No mention at all. This opinion was based on the facts as we know them. My opinion is perhaps built on less stable ground. It focuses on Edith's personality as a gentle, loving, if possibly obsessive mother. Her descendants' memories of Edith go a long way to emphasising her tender nature. I asked agrophologist Andrea to look at Edith's handwriting. I should point out here that Andrea had no knowledge of the story when I provided the handwriting samples, other than Norma having been killed. She certainly knew nothing about the individual family members. Here's what she had to say about Edith. Edith to me is a friendly, she's warm, mm -hmm. she's a warm lady. I think she was an emotional lady. She was quite traditional. I think she would have enjoyed all the traditions of the time, mm -hmm. all the dinners and nice clothes. I think she was a lovely woman. There's something about her that just shows sort of a, a, an expression, a willingness to express who she was. She would have been quite friendly and enjoyed people's company and enjoyed parties and mm -hmm. enjoyed mixing with other people. When you look at the witness statements, you can see the, the turmoil, the baseline is no longer level and it's falling and the middle zone is variable and the pressure varies. You can see by the dip pen, the pressure's sort of not stable there either. So this, she's absolute turmoil signing this witness statement about her daughter. But effusive and outgoing is what I'd say. I don't think she could keep anything to herself. Okay. Not that she was, she could be quite discreet when she wanted to be, but there's also a few open ovals here which show that she did like to talk. She was a spontaneous mm -hmm. talker. This fits well with the family's impression of Edith and reinforced their already strong belief that Edith was not the killer. I'd been initially pretty suspicious of Norma's brother, Rhys, and others at the time shared that opinion. You may remember the anonymous Justica letters accusing Reese of attacking his sister and being shielded by his mother. But my thoughts on Reese have slipped back and forth. From a troubled, impulsive young man trying, often unsuccessfully, to cope with life in a dysfunctional family, to a devious, self-serving adult who resented his sister's apparent successes. I'm still not totally sure where I sit. Here's what Andrea got from his handwriting. I felt that Reese was quite a friendly chap. I think he's probably more like his mother. 
surprisingly, he's writing about his father's grave. It doesn't look like it's a terribly sad script. Um, I don't know how he felt about his father. He seems to be, there's a sense of balance, but there's also, he doesn't give much away. He's certainly keeping quite a bit to himself. There's covering strokes, strokes on the D. I think there's also a bit of a, um, a self-image. He's not, he's not terribly confident, but he still gets on with things. But there's a definite warmth to Reese. Ultimately, I think Reese may well have been aware of what happened to Norma and being complicit in hiding the truth. But perhaps he was not a killer. I still consider the most likely suspect to be Norma's father, Norman MacLeod. All I'd learnt about him suggested he was a troubled man with controlling tendencies who would not have liked to have his authority challenged by a member of his own family. And interestingly, this is what Andrea said about Norman's handwriting. There's a strange element to Norman's writing. There's this colouration he does on capitals and on downstrokes and it's with a dip pen, I would say, but he's, he tends to reiterate these downstrokes. I don't know whether it's through a, a repetitive movement. I think it might be. But there's a certain element of this covering up. There's a sort of covering up element to Norman's writing. It's also quite a very small middle zone, which tells me that he didn't have a great self-image and quite thready. But if you look very closely with a magnifying glass, I had to enlarge this several times, you can see, you know, here where there's, it's quite angular. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you look again over here, it's, it's, it's almost a wiggly line, like a, like a thread. So when you see that, you can see someone who's quite, who can be manipulative. He's capable of being very evasive. I think he would be a very difficult person to get to know and very private and a bit mysterious and quite happy to remain that way. I'm convinced that Norma was planning a new life, a life of independence, free from an oppressive, possibly abusive parental relationship, and Norman just couldn't accept it. By the way, this is what Andrea had to say about Norma. Norma writes with a a well-developed upper zone, uh, the tops of the the L and the D. I can see that she had, she's an intelligent girl and she was interested in, in ideas So I think she had so much ahead of her. It's connected once again. The connections are gentle. There's a a tiny loop in here, a diligence loop, which you can see that she was a hardworking girl. There's quite a bit of balance in this writing and I think this shows so much potential. She, She was also quite respectful. She didn't leap into things. There's an element of caution in this girl very level lines, like she was a a stable girl. She wasn't flighty or silly. I don't believe Norman meant to kill his daughter. I truly believe he just lashed out in anger, a moment of temporary insanity. As for remorse, well, he may have tried to make Norma comfortable, but he failed to get her the proper medical support from a hospital and couldn't admit his own guilt or protect his wife from the brunt of shame and accusations. After the inquest and the scandal died down, the MacLeods moved first to Western Australia and then to South Australia. Norman died seven years after his daughter's death from a blood clot in the heart. He was 68 years old. After his death, Edith and Rhys went their separate ways, perhaps now free of Norman's controlling influence. 
Rees moved to Sydney, where he married in September 1936. He later returned to Victoria. According to family, Edith would visit Rees at his home quite regularly. While the relationship was not easy, perhaps weighed down by a shared secret, a relative told me that Rees seemed to feel sorry for his mother and felt obliged to spend time with her. He was, it was said, a very dutiful son. Relying on the support of family, after her husband's death, Edith spent the remainder of her life living with her sisters, first in Ballarat with her sister Claudia, then in Geelong with her sister Annie. Edith died of pancreatic cancer on the 10th of January 1960, aged 92. She was cremated and her ashes buried in the Melbourne General Cemetery in the same plot as her beloved daughter, Norma. Rhys died in 2000, aged 94, apparently never having discussed his sister's death with anyone. Well, apart from the obvious final resolution to who killed Norma, what remains unanswered? The big questions that remain for me are why and how did Norma buy that land? And why did she keep it a secret? Is this somehow a key to her death? And who was Asmodeus? Okay, so I have to admit, when I first began my investigation, I was fairly dismissive of the police focus on this letter. Now it's become a key focus for me. But not because of Asmodeus's proposed theory about who killed Norma, but because of my fascination with who Asmodeus was and why he wrote this letter. In the last episode, Dr Karen Scully said she believed that Max Dunn may have been Asmodeus, a suggestion that was also made in 1929. That was why we called on the services of a handwriting expert in the first place. We asked Andrea to compare Dunn's handwriting with that of Asmodeus. Well, Mr Dunn's writing has a different form of connection. It's also upright. So if Mr Dunn were to, was to write this letter, it would be very difficult for him because he's got to... This is fast. The Asmodeus letter? The Asmodeus letter is fast. One of the first things I do as a graphologist, we look at the speed of the writing and there's a lot of characteristics that we measure. This writing is... It's, it's definitely fast script, whereas Max Dunn's writing or Walter Dunn is upright. It's also, there's a lot of um, more garland and thread strokes. It is all connected, but I don't think this person could write this way. Andrea was pretty certain that Dunn had not written the Asmodeus letter. So perhaps that theory should be dismissed. What do you think? However, what's common to all our experts who looked at the letter independent of each other is the belief that Asmodeus knew more than he was saying. From a forensic psychology perspective, Dr Scally said, I think everything about the name, the the content, if you analyse the content of the letter, I would say with almost complete certainty this is not an innocent person trying to help the investigation. All the signs point toward this person either having knowledge of or being the perpetrator, and I would lean toward being the perpetrator. Ex-homicide detective Charlie Bazina added, 
It's interesting when he says, well, and I'll go for a, a walk. This is the route I take. And this particular day I stopped there. I heard two women arguing. He identifies the house. More specific type of things of saying, well, what I saw and what I heard. He was so specific in certain things. Is this the offender? Is this someone who's close to the family? He brings in the Virgo and take that win. Well, that's, that's a strange comment to make. Are they just playing detective? Are they being mischievous? Are they, if not the offender, are they knowledge of who the offender is? Are they protecting the family? Mm. So all these things come into play and the fact that he was there from, for half an hour, it doesn't ring true to me, the fact that I was there for, from 2.30 to 3 o'clock and I didn't see anyone come or go or leave. To me, if I was in the investigation then, would have been crucial. Why well, just say I stayed there for half an hour? If I'm just walking past, how many discussions or arguments can you hear? How far were you? You were here, but you couldn't have heard discussions from a closed door and that being able to be specific to the back of the house where the voices were coming from. And Andrea Scarf, our handwriting analyst, said... My first impression of this writing, that it was very intense. There's no doubting the, the angularity and the, the marked right slant. So this is an intense person who feels things passionately um, without being able to feel the pressure. It's pencil written and the darkness of the strokes does indicate that I imagine there would be, I wouldn't be surprised if there was some pressure added to these. This is, I have to say, an unpleasant character. He's certainly not easygoing. He's combative. He's a bit of a bull of the gate kind of character. Uh, There's a lot of long rightward strokes, so he really doesn't, doesn't have any trouble throwing his words out. It's completely connected. There's huge letter Ks, Ks that when you see the K enlarged, you can say that this is a person who likes an argument. There's an, also another characteristic here that is, is a bit disturbing, and that's called a shark's tooth, where you can see a, a real arch forward and then a retracing arch backwards. So this is a, this is a nasty character indeed. For someone to write this letter, as a graphologist, we don't look at the content, we look at the style. But when you do read the content, you do question why someone would write an incriminating letter the day after an event. It certainly doesn't have any sensitivity, and that, that's true to himself. He doesn't have a great deal of sensitivity to other people. You may remember in Episode 3, I mentioned a report I'd had done by a content analyst using the scan technique. In that report, Elizabeth Martin from Advanced Polygraph wrote... There are numerous points that would suggest the writer of the statement had more knowledge of the events than he provided. It would also suggest that the writer potentially knows the parties involved more intimately than he was revealing. It is the opinion of the examiner that the writer was either involved in the incident or has more intimate knowledge. And it's interesting to note that Asmodeus wrote directly to Superintendent Walsh, whose name wasn't mentioned in the Herald article referred to by the anonymous letter writer. Perhaps Asmodeus was aware of criminal matters in Melbourne and would know Walsh was in charge of the criminal investigation branch. Or was he closer to the case than he said, and therefore very aware of who was in charge? Frustratingly, if you remember from episode 3, we know that apparently friends of Norma believed that the writer was one of four people, but no one revealed who those four people might be. As I've said, handwriting expert Andrea dismissed the idea of it being done. She also ruled out Norman, Edith or Rhys. 
Other suggestions in 1929 included Edward de la Tour, a medium, Norman Cleveland, a car salesman, Mr. Burt, a rent collector, and Robert Money, a journalist. Sadly, we don't have any samples of de la Tour's, Burt's or Money's handwriting to say for sure, but I'm sceptical about their connection. What about the suggestion it was John Gomer David, Norman MacLeod's brother-in-law? If you remember from episode 3, he was suggested as a potential Asmodeus in another anonymous letter. But there's no record of whether he was interviewed. What about his handwriting? All I had was his signature on his will. This is what Andrea made of it. Well, I noticed that he has written his signature. The first two letters aren't readable. He identifies more strongly with his surname mm-hmm. than his, his own name here. What I'm also noticing, though, this angular base is directed at the, at the mother figure okay. or at women, mm-hmm. which may be a little concerning based on what we're, what we're looking at here. It, it, it is all connected. There's a number of arches, though, which makes me think that there's a controlling element to this person mm-hmm. and quite a big G here. So he does sort of encircle things. He likes to, it's a protective nature, but I wonder if that protection is a good thing. Okay. Um, he sort of likes, likes things to be under his control to, to a degree. And I know without putting you on the spot because you haven't had a thorough assessment mm. in terms of matching it with Asmodeus, so I guess it's more of a question, could you rule him out? I still don't think you could rule him out. There's a number of, it does have a right slant, it, does, it is connected. There's a number of, it, this initial form, I can see this in the As, Asmodeus letter. Uh, so you really would need to see more. But as for all the other writings, I think this is the one that's most questionable as having the potential. So was J.G. David Asmodeus? I discovered more recently that David had been charged with assaulting his 15-year-old domestic in 1885, which made me question his character. But he was acquitted and a family member told me the accusation was made as an act of retaliation by the young girl, with no basis of truth. Anyway, more food for thought. Andrea also suggested that some of the other letters may also have been written by Asmodeus. If you remember from episode 7, forensic psychologist Dr Scally had herself suggested this. Here's what Andrea had to say from a handwriting perspective. There was a letter that was written, again, anonymously, which was the note that suggested that John G. David was Asmodeus. Could that person have written the Asmodeus letter as well? Possible. Um, Once again, this page was assessed for speed and it's slow. The moment you see slow writing, it raises a question. But what I noticed, even though it was slow, there were similar forms, I thought, to this letter, as in the shape of this C as being the same shape as the A here. So between the Asmodeus letter and the letter suggesting J.G. David was the, was Asmodeus, there's some similarities? I think so. And uh, he also does surprisingly a large K here as well, which was another common feature right through. The slant is exactly the same. So there was a few things that made me think 
it's possible with this letter. Yeah, I think it's fabricated. That's okay. the whole thing. It's not natural. Another letter written to police, which simply says, I killed Norman MacLeod, catch me if you can, the fox. I think this is completely fabricated, this with these extra additions and it's stop, start all the way. And you look at this L and you look at this L and you could think, what's happening here? Just similar between yes. the Fox letter and the Asmodeus letter? Yes, you can see something there and then you see tiny angles here with some an additional angle thrown in and long T-bars and a, another long stroke. He loves his long strokes. They're everywhere. It's just a case of how many suggestive letters did he write? Another. And then we've got another one, that which was the Mr. Burt letter. Mr. Burt letter, which I saw similarities of again with this one and this Y here and this Y here. And the pressure pattern's even the same, just from the colour. Potentially some connections between the Asmodeus letter, the letter pointing to John G. David. Yes. John G. David's signature. Yes. And the Mr. Burt letter. Mr. Burt letter. The Fox letter. And the Fox letter. Well, can you help crack the mystery of Asmodeus's identity? And if so, how will this help Norma's case? Was he a malicious but uninvolved commentator? Did he know the killer? Or was he himself involved in the killing? Does my theory of Norman MacLeod as the killer convince you? This is where we leave you. When I was thinking about this episode, I kept asking myself how I was going to tie things up. My producer, Courtney, reminded me of the final episode of Series 1 of Serial, that brilliant podcast about the death of Haymin Lee and the arrest of Adnan Syed. In it, host Sarah Koenig asks herself, what is my ending? For her too, this implies some sort of resolution. But whether you believe in Adnan's innocence or not, the story isn't over. Sarah herself admitted that she continues to sway in her opinion, as do I. So all we can do is present the information as we found it and let you come to your own conclusions. Or, better still, weigh in on the debate. I've said numerous times that we've created this podcast to open a dialogue, to engage with you and to encourage input to help get us closer to the truth in Norma's story. This was always about trying to close a case by opening more doors. It was always about justice for Norma, which became even more of a driver as I worked closer and closer with her family, and as I understood more and more about Norma herself. A struggling free spirit on the verge of independence with great potential to give back to those less fortunate than herself. What a waste, what a loss. I can't let it go, I won't let it go. So for me, to use the words of T.S. Eliot, in my end is my beginning. The investigation's not over yet. With your help, I hope there's still more digging to be done. Archives was written and presented by me, Emma Curtin, and produced by Courtney Carthy. 
Voices were provided by Daniel, Simon, Elaine, Jill, Alan, Ben and Cassidy. And thanks to our experts, Byron, Charlie, Karen and Andrea. You can see a full list of all these people in the episode notes. Thank you all so much for sticking with us as we try to piece together Norma's story. We've put a lot of work into the investigation and we're thrilled that you've been part of it. Thanks to all of those who've emailed your suggestions. We'll get to those as soon as we can and hopefully you'll be hearing from us. Don't forget to stay in touch. You can email me, emma at murderarchives.com.au or check out our website or share your stories of your own research endeavours. <laughs>